you're looking at the insert in the bulletin, you'll see that this is the 11th sermon that we are having on uh, this chapter, on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been studying these verses for more than, than two months now as we have gone through these verses phrase by phrase by phrase. And, and we have seen what it means to say that love is patient. That is, that, that love bears with others. It, it does not return evil for evil, but rather, even when evil is done to it, it continues to be kind. It continues to, to seek the blessing of the other, even if the other is an enemy. We've seen that love does not envy the, the good that is shown to others. It, it does not hold in contempt those who are in blessed, but, but rejoices in their blessing. We've seen that love does not boast as if the things that God has, has given it were its own doing or its own due. We've seen that love is not arrogant, regarding itself as more important than others, and it is not rude, disregarding the, the value of others made in the image of God. We've seen that love does not seek its own. It does not put its own interests first, but rather seeks the interests of others. We've seen that love is not provoked. It is not easily angered. It does not seek vengeance, but delights to be patient that all might be brought to repentance. And we've seen that love does not reckon evil in its patience. It, it does not store up a record to, that it can use later as it defers judgment, but rather delights to see sins covered, to see guilt pardoned. And finally, last Sunday, we saw that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rather love understands that the neighbor's good is always to be found in what God Himself calls righteous, and that which He says is His eternal truth. So this morning we come to the last phrase in this description. But because this is the second Sunday of Advent, I think we have to ask ourselves, well, well, why didn't we just set this aside until the new year? Why aren't we focusing on a more appropriate text at the Advent season? And of course, I want to suggest to you that this is a most appropriate text for the Advent season, for what is Advent all about? Advent is the time when we remember and celebrate the coming of the Messiah, the the coming of the Savior. But what is that salvation all about? I would suggest to you that this text is actually a picture of the salvation that Jesus came to bring. We have said it many times in our study of the last few months, but we've said that, that Christian love is the essence of the Christian life. This is a picture of the Christian life as, as Paul envisaged it. This is, is what Paul calls Christian disciples to. And this is what Paul tells us that Christ came to save us to. You see, Christian love is the goal of the salvation that Christ brings. We say in our catechism that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the purpose for which we were created. That is the purpose which we fell short of in our sin. And that is the purpose to which we are restored in Christ. When when Christ comes to save us, He doesn't come to save us to something totally new. Rather, He comes to to bring us back to what we were originally created for, for the glorifying and the enjoying of God for all Eternity, that is what salvation is about. It is a restoration of our calling to be image bearers of God. And what Paul is showing us here in this text is he is showing us 
the way. He is showing us what he calls the most excellent way. The way that glorifies God and leads to our joy in him. You see, the Corinthians, they were, they were fascinated with the spiritual gifts, and understandably so. They, they were amazed by the power of the Holy Spirit that was at work in their congregation. And, and they were fascinated by, by the power and the presence of, of the Spirit. But what Paul wanted them to see is that spiritual gifts had a purpose beyond themselves. That God gave gifts to the church, not as ends in themselves, but rather as a means of building up the church, of of edifying the church, of, of building the church towards maturity in Christ. Gifts were for that purpose. And so what is beyond gifts, the the, the goal of gifts, the, the purpose of gifts, is that maturity in Christ. And these verses describe what maturity looks like. It is Christian love. And so we see the the church being built up by the power of the Spirit through gifts to something greater than gifts. To love that is similar to what we see here. That love is marked by these characteristics. And when you begin to see love, when you begin to see Christian love, when you begin to see this portrait that Paul gives us here in 1 Corinthians 13 as the goal of our salvation, you, you understand why then this is such an appropriate text for us to study and to, to remember during the Christmas season. It's easy for us to say, well, yes, Jesus is the reason for the season. You know, that it's Jesus' birthday that we are celebrating. But it's easy, even when we remember Jesus, to forget why Jesus came. You know, it's easy for us to, to say, well, yes, we want to celebrate Jesus' birth, but what was Jesus coming for? What was the goal of his incarnation? What was the goal of his advent? You see, scriptures tell us again and again, Jesus tells us with his own lips, he says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Paul says that, that That it is a trustworthy saying that Christ came to save sinners. But in our modern uh, community, in our our modern uh, day, even the language of salvation needs to be explained. Because salvation is not only from, it's not only from the guilt of sin, it's not only that our sins might be forgiven. We have been not only saved from, we have been saved to. We have been saved to new life. Paul tells us in in Romans 6 that we have been united with him in a death like his, that we might also be united in him in a resurrection like his, that we might be raised to newness of life. And this is that new life. It's why Paul can say in Titus chapter 2 that Jesus came to redeem for himself a people, a people who are zealous for good works. A people who are zealous to live a life of of Christian love. So much so that Jesus himself could say, they will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. So as we continue our study of these verses over the next couple weeks of the Advent season, I want us to remember, we, we study these verses now because it's where we are, it's where we've been, but also because this is the goal of what Jesus came. This is, this is why He came to save us. This is what He came to save us to. And so when we think about that, there are, there are at least two implications to seeing this as the goal of, of Jesus' mission. To seeing this as the goal of, of what Jesus came to do. And the, and the first is simply this. If this is what Jesus came to do, we can be pretty sure He's going to do it. 
right? And sometimes when we read these verses in 1 Corinthians 13, we can, we can focus almost exclusively on the ways that we fall short, right? We can say, well, love is patient. I'm not. <laughs> you know, love is kind. Me? Not so much. You know, love doesn't envy, but I, but I do. And we can get very discouraged very quickly as we, as we look at these verses and we can focus on the ways that we fall short. But what we know, that if this is what Christ came to do, if he chose us before the foundations of the earth, that we would be holy and blameless in his sight, then we can know this is where Jesus is taking us. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for this. And so this is a vision of what we will be. There's there's hope here. Yes, it's right to examine ourselves. Yes, it's right to see the ways that we fall short. But but it's also right to look and to hope and and to long for the day when he will bring to completion the good work that he has begun because this is where he is taking us. But the fact that he's taking us there doesn't mean that we don't have to work at it. And that's the the second implication. That if this is where he's taking us, if this is the the goal, then this is what we ought to be working towards. John tells us in in 1 John chapter 3, he says, listen, everyone who believes in Christ has this hope. And this is the hope. That one day, this will describe us. One day we will fulfill these verses perfectly. One day we will be people marked by this kind of, of love. And, and all the shortcomings that we know now will, will be gone. They will be eradicated. We will be complete. But, Paul, but John goes on to say that everyone who has that hope purifies himself now. You see, if this is truly good news, if it's truly good news that this is what Jesus is making us, then we're not going to kind of wait and say, well, you know, okay, that's coming. I'll do that one day. But for now, I'm going to keep enjoying, you know, all these other things as if they were somehow better. No, when, when he opens our eyes in faith, we begin to see, no, this is life. This is life abundant. It's what we heard in our call to worship this morning, that he is the good shepherd who comes to give us life and to give it abundantly. This is the abundant life that we would be marked by this love. And so now in the present, we do strive towards this goal in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what we said in our confession of faith this morning. Having received Jesus Christ as as Lord and, and Savior, we now resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that we will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ. We will endeavor to live as followers of Christ ought to live. And that means living in accord with this portrait of Christian love. And so with that in mind, I want us to turn our attention here to the last verse of uh, this paragraph here this morning. Love, uh, Paul gives us four bullet points, as it were. He says, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. As in some sense, it's, it's Paul's executive summary at the end. Okay, here, here it is. This is what love does. He's, he's told us a lot of things love doesn't do. And now he says, this is what love does. It bears, it believes, it hopes, it endures. And if you look at those words, you see that there's a, there's a pattern there. There's sort of a, a parallelism of, of two pairs. Love bears and believes. Love hopes and in, endures. 
But it's, it's the way Hebrews do parallelism, and that means that it's, it's sort of reversed. The second pair is reversed from the first. And so you have love bears corresponding to love endures, and love believes corresponding to love hopes. And so that's the way we're going to take these verses. We're going to look at the first and the last this morning. We're going to look at what it means to say that love bears and love endures this morning. And then next Sunday, we will consider what it means to say that love believes and love hopes. And so what does it mean to say that love bears all things? Well, throughout this study, we've been defining love as a genuine desire for the good of the other that, that prompts us and motivates us to act in their best interest. So, so love is, is more than action, and it's more than emotion. It's, it's both. It is a, a genuine desire for the good of the other that then moves us to act in a way that advances their well-being. That's what love is. That's what love does. And what Paul is telling us here, by telling us that love bears all things, is that love is willing to bear any cost in the pursuit of the other's good. What's it going to cost you to pursue the good of your neighbor? Whether that neighbor is a member of your family, whether it's somebody who lives in the street, whether it's somebody you work with, what, what is it going to cost you to pursue their good? Paul tells us that love is willing to bear that cost. Love is willing to bear all things for the sake of the other's good. This is precisely the, the sort of love that we see modeled by Christ, is it not? Think of, of Paul's amazing description of, of Jesus' love for us in Philippians chapter 2, where we are told that, that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, becoming even a servant, obedient even to the point of death on a cross. That's the, the cost that, that Jesus was willing to, to pay for us. And, and we sometimes we, we, we sometimes forget that there was a cost involved. We sometimes forget how high the cost was. We, we think, well, he's God. He can, he can do anything. It's kind of like the way you know, Superman is depicted in the, uh, the TV shows today. You know, when Superman was first created as a character, he had some weaknesses. He could leap tall buildings with a single bound, but he couldn't necessarily fly. And, 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 and he, was, he had weaknesses. But, but in today's Superman, he's almost invincible. He's, he's like totally indestructible. And that's the way we sometimes think about Jesus. Well, you know, he's God, therefore everything's easy. Everything's easy, but, but we see the struggle. We see Jesus' struggle in the garden on the night that he was betrayed. Think about what Jesus is, is praying on that night. He says, God, this is a significant cost. If there's any other way, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, Father, take this cup from me. But each time that he prayed for the Father to remove the cup, he ended the prayer the same way. He always said, but not my will. Yours be done. It was a struggle. It was a, it was a cost. The, the whole incarnation was a cost. Christ came from heaven and he became human, taking on our weaknesses, taking on our affirmities, taking to himself a real human nature. But not only did he become human, but he became a humble human. He became a suffering human. He became a human who would die upon a cross. But not only under the condemnation of Rome, he would die upon a cross under the condemnation of his father. His father with whom he had known eternal 
community bliss. He would cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the cost. That was the cost that he was willing to bear for us. It was was not easy. It It was painful, but he was willing to bear all things for the sake of loving us well. And now Paul says that his love for us is a model of how we are to love others. Now obviously that doesn't mean that we are to give our life as an atonement sacrifice for others. We're not qualified to do that. You know, there have been a few throughout uh, church history who have, who have you know, felt compassion for people so deeply that they, that they claimed that they were willing to, to even have their names blotted out. Moses said it of, on behalf of, of the people of Israel. Paul himself said it of, of his, his kinsmen. But even if they loved so deeply, they, they, they didn't have the right to do it. They, they themselves were sinners in need of salvation. They couldn't give their life. And so we don't give our life as an atonement sacrifice. Christ has done that once and for all time. The price has been paid. It does not need to be repeated. Our salvation is ready to be repeat, revealed in the last days, having been bought and paid for, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of, of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. So we don't give our life as a ransom. We don't give our life as an atonement sacrifice. But Paul says we do give our lives. We must be willing to, to give our lives in the service of our neighbor. We must be willing to, to give our lives for the good of others. Of course, sometimes it's harder to give something less than your life. Sometimes it's it's not the laying down of your life that's hard. Sometimes it's it's just the willingness to be inconvenienced. I had a a friend in in Asheville who said, you know, in in our day and age, we know true love when you're willing to be inconvenienced for somebody. Are you willing to give up, not your life, but are you willing to give up your Saturday afternoon? Or are you willing to give up your, your weekday evening to serve? And, and to serve really all kinds of goods. We, we think about people's physical goods. We, we think about their physical needs. And, and we are called on to, to love our brothers in such a way that we respond to their physical needs. John tells us that if you claim to love your brother but ignore their physical needs, then, then you do not know true love. And we have different opportunities to, to do that. We have different opportunities to, to respond to people's physical needs. Just uh, this past week, we've seen the fires in, in Gatlinburg, and there are needs there now, as, as many have, have lost their homes, as, as many who have, have, have suffered, and, and churches are gathering to, to help those people who have lost. We've had similar uh, situations in our own community where we need to rally around those who have physical needs. And sometimes it's not disaster, but sometimes it's, it's just the realities of life in this fallen world. And we support ministries here in Cleveland, like the Caring Place, like the the refuge that come alongside those who who need. What are you willing to bear? What cost are you willing to bear to come alongside people who have physical needs? I know of one family that uh, was deciding that they were going to give a portion of their grocery budget to those in in Gatlinburg uh, this month. And so it's going to mean that they are going to eat differently this coming month because they're giving away a portion of the money that they usually spend on, on food for themselves. It's just one example of a cost they were willing to bear in order to come alongside those who are in need. But of course, it's not only physical needs. 
Love goes beyond physical needs. We, we have physical needs. Physical needs are real, but they are not the extent of our need. In fact, sometimes our, our emotional needs and our relational needs are, are even greater. We live in a, a society where people are lonely, where the community we experience in churches is not common. We live next to people who, who, who may have almost no relationships whatsoever. What cost are we going to bear? Because it's, it's cost. It's a cost to give up your evening to have your neighbors over. It's, it's a cost to, 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 uh, to get to know people that you might not otherwise know. What cost are we willing to bear? But of course, above all of these needs, the greatest needs that our neighbors have are their spiritual needs. Their, their needs to, to know God. And when Paul uses this same phrase elsewhere, this idea of enduring all things, this idea of bearing all costs, when Paul uses this language elsewhere, he uses it in relationship to his gospel ministry. Look back in chapter 9, verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 12. Paul is discussing his own ministry and his own work as an apostle. And he says at the beginning of verse 12, he says, If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? What's the claim he's talking about? He's claiming that he has a right to be paid as a minister of the gospel. And I'm really glad he says that. You know, because I get to make my living as a minister of the gospel. But notice what Paul says. He says, I have a right, like any other preacher of the gospel, I have a right to be paid for my ministry. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we, it's here translated as endure, but it's actually the same word as bear in chapter 13. He says here, but we bear anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He said, I'm willing to bear anything. I'm willing to have to work nights as a tanner. I'm, having to, I'm willing to have to work night as a, as a tent maker. I'm willing to, to do what's necessary in order to be a minister of the gospel, in order not to put a stumbling block in the way of other people's faith. And not only is he called to that, but he actually says the Corinthians are called to that. He actually admonishes them for not being willing to bear that cost. Back in, in chapter 6, if you flip back a little bit farther, he's here talking about the lawsuits among the believers. And he says, listen, the biggest problem with the lawsuits among believers is that it is destroying your witness in the community. <laughs> You guys are going to, to court with one another, even though you claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, why not rather be wronged, why not rather be defrauded even, than to drag the name of Christ through the mud by the way that you're relating to one another in the, the court system. He said, you ought to have been willing to, to bear that cost for the sake of the gospel. So Paul says, listen, love bears all things. Love is, is willing to, to bear the cost of loving a neighbor well. This is what Paul challenges us with. He says it's going to cost you to, to love your neighbors this way, to, to love your family this way, to love your siblings this way. To, to love this way is going to be costly, Paul says. But love is willing to bear that cost. But where does love find that willingness? Where does, where does love find the willingness to bear such cost in the pursuit of another's good? 
There's something in us that will absorb some level of cost in the pursuit of our own good. If we have a goal, we're willing to endure some hardship. People are willing to live in very, um, you know, less than nice apartments in order to pursue a degree. People are willing to, to eat, you know, a certain kind of food in order to, to gain sort of health. They're, they're willing to, you know, punish their body with certain exercises in order to gain a certain level of, of fitness. When it, when it comes to our own good, we're willing to absorb costs, but it, it sort of goes against our fallen nature to absorb costs for the good of others. Where do we find this willingness? Well, again, I think we we have a clue in the example of of Jesus. Think about what we're told in, in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that Christ goes to the cross, that He endures the cross for the joy that was set before Him. For the joy that was set before Him. What is it? That Christ knew? What is it that that sustained Him? What is it that strengthened Him to to go to the cross? To say, not my will, but Yours be done to His his Father on the night that He was betrayed. It was the the joy. The joy of doing His Father's will. The joy of of redeeming a a people who will bring glory to His Father for all eternity. The joy of, of seeing where all this is headed. For the joy that was set before Him, Christ endured the cross. And because He endured the cross, there has now been a joy set before us. There's a joy set before us. There's a a joy that Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 4 is beyond all comparison. He says the weight of glory that is being prepared for us is not worth comparing with the, the sufferings that we are asked to endure. Sufferings that he calls slight and momentary. And if you want to know what a slight and momentary suffering looks like, go and read about Paul's sufferings later in, in 2 Corinthians. The list that he, that he gives us. Because I don't think any of us would just instinctually call them slight and momentary. These are, are sufferings that are significant. These are, these are sufferings where he's getting beaten, where he's being stoned, where he's being imprisoned. And yet he says those sufferings are not worth comparing with the joy that is set before us. The joy of of calling others to fellowship in Christ. The joy of of seeing a a, a church that praises and, and, and glorifies our King. He says, for the joy set before us, we have been set free. We have been set free to seek the good of others. Because our good is secure. And our good is actually found now in calling others into our joy. It's what Paul says. He says, He says, listen, you are my joy. It's the way he talks about the Corinthians. He says, where's my joy to be found now? My joy now is in your faith. My joy now is to see you living a life glorifying to God. There's nothing that I would rather see. John uses that same language about his children, and I'm sure it applies to his his actual physical children, but it applies to his spiritual children as well, his, his spiritual sons and daughters. He says, nothing gives me greater joy than to see you walking with the Lord. And so for that joy, for that joy set before him, he is willing to bear any cost because he knows life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in ease. Life does does not consist in, in the pleasures of this world. They are fleeting. Life, true life, the abundant life that we have been called to is found in glorifying our King for all eternity and calling others into that joy. And therefore, for the joy set before us, we are willing to bear any 
cost. But notice, running out of time, but, but notice he, he adds to that. He doesn't just repeat it. It, it. The same idea, and you can even see it in the way that the, the word gets translated as bear or endure, but the word that Paul uses next, the word that, that Paul uses next, this word endure, it adds a nuance to this idea of bearing the cost. Because it, it adds the idea that not only are we willing to, to bear the cost, but we are willing to bear the cost for as long as it takes. The word that, that Paul uses in the, in the second phrase, the one that's translated endure in our translation, it, it, it emphasizes persevering to the end. The idea is that we're not willing to bear this cost once. We're not willing to say, well, three strikes and then you're out. But rather, we're willing to bear the costs for as long as it takes. And again, how thankful we are that God loves us with such a love. How many times do you go before your father with the same list of sins? How many times do you, do you come before him saying, Father, forgive me again for these things that I struggle with? We, we call them besetting sins. We even have a name for it. We say, these are the sins that I, that I struggle with. We don't all struggle with the same sins, but the sins we struggle with, we, we tend to struggle with again and again and again. If you're, if you're prone to anger, if you have a, a short fuse, if you, if you have a temper, whatever you know, euphemism you want to use... If that is a sin, then it's a sin that you struggle with. And, and you have to go to before God again and again and say, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned in my anger. You know what your besetting sins are. You know the sins that you bring before your Father again and again and again. And how grateful you are that He doesn't have a three strikes in your out policy. How, how grateful you are that he, he forgives you again and again and again. How grateful you are that that his love has no expiration date. He says, this is the way you are to love. In this life, you are to be willing to bear as long as it takes because your afflictions here can't be more than momentary. They can't last more than this life. That's what Jesus meant when he said, listen, do not fear the one who can merely kill your body, but fear the one who has authority over your soul. He is the one. The worst they can do to you is take this physical life. The blessings that God provides are so far beyond anything that they can take from you that you're willing to bear the cost, not just for a moment, but you're willing to bear them to the end. We sometimes reach a point in our relationships with other people where where we're ready to to write them off. We're we're ready to, to cut them off. We're ready to say, no more. You know, you've had your chances. But Paul says as Christians, we don't have that option. That's not to say that we're supposed to be naive. It's, it's not to say that, that, that we're, we're not to exercise tough love at times, but we're to make sure that it's actually love and not just the end of our patience. There are times where we will have to uh, be stern in order to, to call people in love to the truth. Remember what we saw last Sunday, the, the truth, the, the, the true love never rejoices in unrighteousness. It never affirms another person's sin. It calls them into a life that conforms with the way God intends life to be. Parents know this instinctively as they, as they correct their children in love, that they might know life as it is supposed to be. And our, our own relationship will sometimes work that way. The church itself is, is called upon to exercise discipline. 
The church itself is is called upon to to correct. We are to be correcting one another, but there comes a time when the elders of the church must must step in and and say to someone who, who claims to be a follower of Christ, listen, what you are doing is not in accord. Paul talks about just such an example in this book. Back in chapter 5, he, he talks about a man who is, who is living an immoral life. And he says, listen, as the church, you need to say to this man that he is, he is not living as a follower of Christ. And you need to hand him over to Satan. Not, not that, that he might be cursed, but that he might come to know the truth. And that he might truly come to experience salvation. So there, there's a place. There's a place for correction. There's a, there's a place for rebuke. But it's always with love. It's always with love. It it always says, listen, we are willing to endure with you to the very end. We are willing to endure with you. We're not willing to call what you're doing right. We're not willing to to shade the truth. We're not willing to, to simply ignore the sins, but we are willing to forgive. And we are willing to stand beside you in your endeavor to live a life worthy of the name to which you have been called. So Paul says, this is love. Love is a desire For the good of another. A desire that motivates us to act in their best interest. And love is is not just willing to do that when it's easy, but love is willing to bear any cost in order to pursue that good. And it's willing to bear those costs for as long as it takes. That is what Christian love looks like. It's the love that we see demonstrated here at this table, is it not? We're about to come to the table. We're about to to remember and celebrate Christ's death. His his willingness not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. And Paul says, if you've been loved like that, now love like that. Let His love set you free. That you might love others even as you have been loved. That you might bear any cost in the pursuit of their good. And that you might endure in that pursuit for as long as it takes. It's a costly call, but it is a good call. Because it is in such a life that we glorify and enjoy God for all eternity. Because this is what we have been called to. And because this is what God is in fact doing in us through Christ by His Spirit. It's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Pray with me. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. Sometimes, Father, we we focus exclusively on the costs, on the sacrifices. But Father, I pray that You would give us eyes to see the joy that is set before us. So that like that man who found treasure hidden in a field, we might be willing to sell everything in order to gain the treasure to gain the true treasure. Father, this is what we ask for, and we pray for it boldly in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.